Hello and welcome to the Living Mountain Conversations with me, Jenny Sturgeon. In this episode, I speak with Nikki Boland, ceramicist, community worker, activist and carer for her four-year-old daughter, Iris. I wondered if we could just get started by you maybe introducing yourself and a bit about the work that you do in your life. Very broad, broad subject. <laughs> Very broad, yeah. So uh, I'm Nikki. Uh, I live in Perthshire and I have a young daughter who is four and I'm about to have another child, which is a big thing going on in my life. And aside from that, I uh, I have my finger <laughs> fingers in various pies. So I work in an outdoor nursery doing kind of forest school stuff. And I work for a charity that does advice and advocacy work with people who need extra care and support at home. Um, and then I'm also a ceramicist and artist. Me and Nikki have been friends since we were 12, 11? A long time. A long time, yes. Yeah. So, um, long journey. Yeah, a journey, it certainly <laughs> has been a journey. <laughs> um, so in terms of the ceramicist uh, potter lino print side of your work so your artist creative side can you tell me a bit more about your creative practice and also how you got into it in the first place yeah so I guess going back to how long we've been friends you'll you I think both of us have always had a kind of creative interest um enjoyed doing creative things for a lot a lot of my life um, a lot of that, and when I was younger, a lot of that was like painting and drawing and uh, crafting. And then I think, I'm trying to remember, but I think possibly through a trip to Latin America, I sort of discovered printing and, and the process of printing and, and line of printing and was very lucky to do a few courses there and, and uh, see some of the amazing kind of visual work that was happening in Mexico particularly. Um, I was really inspired. And so I kind of picked picked it up there and I think one of the things I really love about printing in a, w- in a way that's kind of different from painting is you're capturing something but there's a real kind of process to it that has different stages it's very tactile and then there's the w- wonderful element of the kind of reveal that mm-hmm. you don't really know while you're carving out wh- whether it's on lino or or wood carving which I've done a bit more of lately you don't really know what's going to come until you print it with the ink and, and that kind of process of pulling away the paper. And it, it never really gets old, that moment. Do you find that you almost hold your breath when you do it? It's like, oh, what's it going to look like? I hope all these hours haven't been... Yeah, and if there's any text involved, you realise that you've not done it backwards. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> A classic. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> So yeah, I really love that. And I and I love the element, because um, I've also done quite a lot of kind of art workshops with kids and things, which I'll talk about later, but I really love that you can kind of bring anything. You know, you don't need to be really good at, at drawing or mm. um, that kind of draftsmanship to, to to make some amazing kind of, to make marks and, yeah. and to do really interesting things. And it's often with that kind of process, the printing process, that, the simpler it is almost I mean the more effective yeah. and striking it is anyway so you don't need those no like incredible art skills yeah, to create absolutely. something that's a beautiful print yeah um yeah so I really like how di- how kind of diverse it is and versatile mm. in that way and then 
and I kind of came to to pottery a, f a few years ago, quite quite late on. Um, initially did did a wee course in Stirling when I lived there, just before I had Iris, and I took a break. <laughs> and then they just happened to be offering courses, evening courses here, uh, near where I live, and I needed an excuse to get out of the house <laughs> very desperately. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so I went along and and. I yeah I really took to it. again there was kind of echoes in that printing process that, that there's a real process so you mm. whether you're doing slabbing most of my work is hand built so I'm coiling or I'm, I'm rolling out the slabs uh, which is very physical and then I'm building the form um, and then finishing that off and then I in my work I tend to put <laughs> a lot of energy into the final decoration mm. um, and again taking away taking from my printing experience I do a lot mm -hmm. of scraffito and etching so scraffito is is painting on the clay with an underglaze and then carving away at it um to get the design I'd love seeing all your work because there's quite a lot of parallels between the prints and the pottery because the, the way that you do it is I, I don't think I've seen anybody else make work uh, ceramic work like what you do and in in a very positive way like it's really unique but it is quite it's very print like yeah it's, it's the same tools and everything I really enjoy that again like kind of carving away at it and, and bringing out the design but also the kind of boldness and like you say my designs are very detailed um often but they also have a kind of boldness I take that kind of often they're just two colors so the color of the clay and one one color a bit like a lot of printing and, and I suppose similarly to printing as well it's like doing the grand reveal you put your yeah. pot in in the kiln and fingers crossed it doesn't explode <laughs> yeah absolutely and so yeah there's, that's again something I love about pottery I love and hate I would say because mm. you know so everybody has that moment where you open the kiln and either it's not quite what you want I've been watching a lot of Grayson Perry and I'm very relieved to see that he <laughs> he has disasters as well and, and yeah it's never quite exactly what you aspire to but there's also like the wonderful you know you can never really tell what glaze is going to do to clay and and how the form is going to adapt in that kind of heat and there's there's a lot of elements that you have to just put down to chance and and <laughs> and to the kiln gods and I do love uh, it's quite addictive I suppose that you just yeah you just don't know that opening the kiln moment is always like Christmas, yeah. <laughs> An adrenaline rush, really, I suppose. Yeah. With the like possibility that you'll be depressed for the rest of the day. <laughs> so kind of like Christmas then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of your, your work is inspired by the natural world. So um, you've recently done, took part in a exhibition about uh, John Muir, is that right? So yeah, it was for the John Muir Trust um, in their space in Pitlochry. And it was inspired by their uh, project around the Caledonian forests and, mm -hmm. um, and the importance of, of rescuing those, but also kind of replanting. I'd already been like doing, you know, you drawing trees into my work quite a lot. So this was a really nice like, opportunity to really like dig down into that and, and focus. I really enjoy the opportunity to kind of deep look into one particular tree or a particular moment I think what's wonderful about nature is it's just constantly changing you've got the seasons you've got you know each week there's a new plant emerging or or something about it is changing and so just mm. it's always hard when you're particularly with trees but all plants to kind of focus on right which which element of that am I going to capture in this piece um 
but but the joy of kind of capturing that moment is really something special. It's been so nice to see that process. I think from the first time I saw any of your pottery, and I've got a bowl of yours just sat over there on the sideboard, and to see how your your personality sort of flourishing in your work as well, probably from the process of you going to do some courses and being shown how to do all these different processes and you finding the bits that really resonate with you and then exploring the things that interest you and that's really nice to see and these pots are absolutely stunning I'll put up some pictures with the podcast as well so people can see your work and uh, yeah it's uh, beautiful beautiful things that you're creating I think what's really nice about the process is it it requires you to kind of look closely so I think you know obviously my my work is inspired by nature but in a sense that process of trying to to make something you'll you'll feel this through the you know your songwriting and your other obviously your your line of printing as well and um and I think it links to Nan's work and Nan Shepherd's work as well is it it forces you to go and look really closely at what you're trying to capture and and understand the different elements and Mm. you know you'll maybe work on a piece and and think you've got it and then you'll go out and you'll see oh no actually (laughs) you know look at the way the leaves just um and sometimes that's about getting a real focus in at the real details it's a different way of seeing isn't it I don't know how you get to 32 years old and you never really notice how beautiful hazel curtains are yeah and it forces you I think when you when you have to kind of find a way to represent that it forces you to keep looking and keep looking Mm -hmm. and, and deepening that that perspective so yeah, so it's been really nice in, in forcing me to do that and giving me a new kind of geekery, I suppose, <laughs> to to the natural world. And and then that also leads you to try and understand more about it in terms of the kind of science and and how things relate to each other. So what are you working on at the moment? What am I working on? A couple of uh, tree-based commissions that I'm working on, which is really nice. And I've got some, some more lichen stuff planned because I really, I've got a bit of an obsession <laughs> with lichen I'm <laughs> just obsessed that's understandable lichen is very cool we should start the lichen appreciation society yes it might already exist to yes, be honest we but should listening to your other podcast about nan shepherd's work and um charlotte who wrote about her and i was thinking about that how, how that book the living mountain really inspired me but it also something about aspiration and i think i'm um you know, I don't get a huge amount of time, unfortunately, to do my creative work. I get mm. little bits and pieces, but between work and caring for a wee girl. Mm-hmm. What's wonderful about Nan's work is it's so so broad, and I have this kind of... It, it inspires me to aspire to bring different elements into my work. So um, I'm really curious at the moment about how to bring people into my work more and how to do that in a way that doesn't feel too cliched and but how to kind of make that link, as Nan does with her book, not just creating this kind of sterile, peopleless environment, but mm. she weaves every element of, of the Cairngorms in. And, and so I, I kind of aspire to do more of that and bring more themes into my work. Yeah. I think natural world is such a, such a rich vein, isn't it? And, and whoops, you know, people throughout history have, <laughs> have taken that as their inspiration and try to represent it and I think that you could go on forever with that I would like as I go on to to find ways to to weave other themes and elements in I suppose that's the nice thing about working within the creative sector is that everything is always open to you all the time so 
being going out for a walk or thinking about Nan Shepherd's book or the Cairngorms or around where you live and there's so many basically the world's your oyster in terms of what you can create yeah I think that's something that's really lovely about the creative world which I used to not get in my previous job as an ecologist and you maybe don't get so much in other elements of your work although there'll be creative elements in that it's kind of a a different different thing isn't it really yeah you don't just have that kind of blank canvas to work you know to just come up with any kind of possibility yeah and you get to be your own boss and be like I fancy doing this I'll give it a go see what happens unfortunately I'm far too into that approach (laughs) which is why my commissions take some time (laughs) to be received (laughs) and also alongside doing the art you also do you mentioned about working with kids outdoors in yeah outdoor education with young kids it's kind of nursery age is it at the moment yeah most of the time it's it's nursery and then we do we we were at least doing a kind of holiday play scheme for primary school age as well which was the yeah that was the role I was doing for the Mm -hmm. longest and in the last couple of years and is that kind of like forest school yeah it's kind of inspired by I think if you looked to the letter, then it possibly wouldn't... There's differences. Um, But yeah, it's very much inspired by the kind of forest school approach taken over from Scandinavia, um, with a very strong emphasis on play and Mm. the the importance of free play. Yeah. I feel like it's something that we've just ignored for so many years in the UK. And like I was over in Norway recently and... It was amazing seeing these like groups of nursery kids and it's like there's thick snow and they're outside all day. <laughs> they just like wear the right appropriate clothing and they're having a great time. Obviously there's caregivers there to make sure they're all okay but it means that there's a load of kids growing up who have some knowledge of the outdoors and a bit of common sense. Do you find, do you see a development in yeah. the children that come? Definitely yeah, I think I think we see a real a real growth particularly if they're they're in the space for a number of days a week and we yeah you see that kind of journey um so we've just obviously done a kind of from August to through into the spring and through winter and I mean it was absolutely hard you know winter in Mm. Scotland is tough yeah (laughs) uh but the yeah the resilience you see in the children their ability to their kind of physical ability but also their ability to to cope with their emotions to go through that stuff and and process that stuff I think you see a real real increase which happens with all children at that age but I I do feel that that environment really inspires and allows that to happen at a quicker pace but also a pace that's quite it feels natural because it's in a natural environment does that make any sense I think that yeah definitely it's in response to real environmental factors that are happening to them but they can engage with them and they can talk about it. And I think a bit like we were talking about, you know, with art that, you know, in nature, things are always changing. And to be in that environment where things are always changing um, and you have to adapt to that. And yeah, yeah, I think that's really powerful. And I think what you see is a real strengthening of, of children's understanding of themselves and the world around them. And then hopefully also kind of their social relationships with other children mm. and adults. We've maybe lost a bit of our knowledge of like seasonality and things. Whereas if the kids are out every day outside, they're going to be like you're saying yourself, like you notice this flowers come up at this time and the weather's turning a little bit more like this. And there's different smells throughout the year, all these things that you're kind of getting back in tune with nature and it's yeah being rooted, isn't it? It kind of helps with being that rooted feeling. I yeah, think. absolutely. Yeah. And I think a big part of what's, 
what's kind of very central to both Forest School and the work we do and and really enhances creativity is this we talk a lot about loose parts play and loose parts here I don't know if that's something you've come across no not it's a a theory that was kind of developed by an architect actually in the 70s who basically basically said that you know the more the more possibilities and variables in an environment the more the more possibilities for creativity are available Mm. and the forest is an (laughs) incredible (laughs) opportunity for that because both the like we're saying the environment is constantly changing so there's constant variables in that but also just in terms of the materials that are available. So if you think of uh, a normal nursery or, you know, the, the set of toys that are sitting in our living room, you'll, you'll have toy cars, you'll have shops. They're great, but they're all, they're all toys that have already been attributed with meaning and with an expectation of how you should be playing with them. Whereas if you go into the forest, you've got sticks, you've got stones, you've got tree stumps, and yes, we can look at that <laughs> those as those things, but actually... There are so many possibilities, and they could be a shop or a or a car. It's you, but it's a different type of imagination. It's less yeah, prescribed, and that opportunity to interpret mm. and and broaden that out is is really wide. What sort of things are the kids doing? It's really really broad. You know, for some for some children, it's all about the rope swing, and they could spend literally all day <laughs> on the rope swing. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> Or in the mud kitchen, you know, rest, you know, we get restaurants and we get served a lot of mud cake. But there's also a lot of imaginative play. You know, there is a lot of shops or mummies and daddies or, you know, wars as well. And yeah. um, there's a lot of climate, you know, there's big tree stumps that they're, you know, being creative with what, what that means. Is it an aeroplane one day and the next day it's, you know, something totally different? Mm. That sounds great. I wish there was that when we were little. Although we got a bit of that from our hippie parents, so we were quite lucky in that regard. <laughs> yeah, well, I think yeah, I think <laughs> we were pretty fair. Yeah, we were certainly pretty feral, I would say, and had and that is a thing, you know. I think um, I read a book relatively recently that talks about the, the difference in in um, how do I describe that? The, the distance, the roaming distance that children have, and how much that has limited, and and the freedom. And I think that's really, really, it's another element that's really important about the nursery is that, off, you know, often I think children at this age, and, and probably to some extent our childhood, we spent quite a lot of time with an adult there. And, and I think we were, we were lucky that we did get that freedom, but it was probably a lot less than, than our know, parents' kids 20 generation. years before that, or our parents, yeah. Um, but kids at, the, at this point have very little time where they're not overseen by an adult. And that's a, that's a really powerful opportunity and really important to kids development that they don't constantly have you know an adult assessing risk for them managing their social interactions because that's you know we all have to learn that kind of the hard way (laughs) and your daughter iris she's four years old and can you tell me a little bit about her as well it's not just a case that you are the parent of a child, which you are, mm-hmm. but you are also in that caring role for Iris. Yeah, so Iris has a, a genetic condition, um, which means she has a learning disability um, and sensory processing stuff. The, the word is supposed to be disorder. I don't really feel that comfortable with <laughs> disorder, but she's a sensory seeker, so she spends a lot of her time seeking out sensory information. So yeah, I'm kind of coming to terms with the, the idea of, of carer. Uh, and how that's different from being a parent, uh, you'll you know because you've met her. She's a total joy. Yeah, yeah. she's incredibly happy in her own skin, and um, 
happy in the world, which is a real pr- privilege to watch. And I mm-hmm. think, as a, I think a lot of parents of children with, with learning disabilities will say, it, it, it's been a, a, a total learning journey for me. And, and uh, mm-hmm. she's given me a, a totally new lens through which to see the world and en- engage with the world. You know, Iris has this amazing ability to to find the the tactile and the visual and the sensory wonder mm. in parts of the world that so much of the time we just, you know, walk past. We or don't engage with. We don't yeah. engage with, we don't notice. So she's really good at finding out which are the really good, you know, bits of the fence to bang yeah. or <laughs> which plants make the best noise and petals fall off as quickly as possible. Yeah, so it's been it's been really, you know, yeah, it's been a real journey, as, as with all parents, but I think Iris has a really special way and I'm so grateful that she's in our lives. I think there are obviously challenges and there have been challenges. I think finding out that she had this condition and and the process of that was really challenging and because uh, there's a lot of not unknowns and I think as a parent you you have certain expectations about what what that experience is going to be like and what your child's going to be like uh, and then usually I think for most of us that is <laughs> A neurotypical child who uh, can do all the things we expect of a child at a certain age. And so it's been hard to adapt to that and it's taken me a few years to kind of feel comfortable. And obviously there's still times when it feels hard and I think there will be times when it gets harder again. We're very lucky at the moment, but, you know, she's a stage of her life where most of the time she can spend it playing and she's very she's given lots of freedom to seek out the sensory information she needs to mm-hmm. so she can spend a lot of time doing that and she she's nonverbal so most of her communication is you know is quite rudimentary but because she's mostly with us we're very able to tune into her and help her with those things but yeah i certainly have worries about you know when she goes on to school and the th- the thing that is often most disabling is is society's expectations and, yeah. and unwillingness to adapt and be inclusive and, oh definitely um, those are my primary worries I suppose for Iris it was interesting you sent me an article prior to doing this podcast and there was a line in it that really struck me that um, identity politics is formed in terms of capability yeah um, and I was like that, that's very true and a lot of people's sort of affirmation of what success and everything is based on what society deems as capable or the important characteristics but you see um someone like iris who is like i mean obviously i'm not with her all the time i'm sure she's not happy all the time like all children but we were on holiday for a week last year together and i've never known a happier little soul she's just running around obviously this amazing sensory toolkit that she has discovered which may do you find that has made you view the world in a different way yeah absolutely absolutely yeah like but partly about like you say tuning in and and trying to experience the world in in the different ways rather than the ways we just kind of tend to the things we focus on which mm-hmm. are often more about you know what can a thing do for us yeah <laughs> rather than like what does it sound like what does it yeah. Feel like. what things do and also how other people perceive us whereas yeah. that doesn't that doesn't factor into her absolutely and for me that's it's so refreshing and I think I as a person that's very much you know going back to that thing about what can you do that for me is a, a total driver is like how productive can, can I be how much can I um mm. contribute has always been a strong messaging for me and to see Iris in the world who you know absolutely <laughs> 
none of that matters to her, you know, as long as yeah. she's, you know, got things to be keeping her engaged and stimulated and, and which includes people, you know, she's super social and she really enjoys um, people's company, but that it's kind of, yeah, there's no superficiality to that or anxiety mm. attached to that. It's it's very clear and I think that's really refreshing to, to see that in the world and to see that that's a really important way to be and um, and she absolutely should have the right and the space to continue being like that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really powerful and I think we should take a lot from that. And, Definitely. Mm-hmm. And I hope that she will continue to be to be received and loved because she because she is and not because of what she can do or how she can do it or um yeah and I think we all deserve that we all deserve to be loved because we exist (laughs) um not because what we can can or can't do in society yeah yeah absolutely yeah but it's so lovely seeing the three of you together you and your partner Justin and Iris and the way you interact and there's a creativity there I think with that relationship and because you're seeking ways for her to be sensory sensorily stimulated I don't know if that's a word um (laughs) but you know you're seeking for ways to her to be stimulated and it's through all these different senses and there's a huge amount of creativity that you and Justin are channeling into that relationship and her growth and development that must feed back in some ways to your creative work as well, I think. Yeah, I hope so. I think in the article, the author talks a lot about that. Maybe we can link to the author so that she's getting some credit for her clever ideas. <laughs> I can't remember her name off the top of my um, head. But yeah, she talks about that, you know, the way that actually carers often spend a large part of their lives uh, being creative and ingenious mm. and, and dealing with really challenging situations and often managing competing demands and and yeah I, I I'm not certain exactly how how it comes to but mm. I think I think it has and I, yeah I think with Iris there's definitely a need to be creative and I think I've learned from Iris is you know so I already worked with children up until this point in other settings and other children mm-hmm. and so in theory I know quite a lot about you know how four-year-olds for example behave and what they need but but you can't apply a lot of that to iris and and that's really refreshing because actually it's it means you have to step back and say well those those things you think you know (laughs) they don't apply you have to look iris in the eye and try and understand right now for her and that individual what is it she needs and and how do i meet those needs and how do we do that together and and so yeah i can i think that's a really refreshing thing and it's definitely a skill that you take into creative work is that need to just strip back the kind of preconceptions and say well what's what's right in front of me and how do I how do I bring my best to that Mm -hmm. there's a lot of for all parents and all carers and and in the creative world as well I'm sure there's overlaps that there's a lot of kind of messaging about how you should be doing things and expectations Mm. and so probably now more than ever as well because there's so much online and people are love to comment on how well they think you're doing <laughs> or whatever or not as the case may be yeah absolutely and so it takes confidence to you know to to work through that messaging and take what's important and then strip back the stuff that you're like actually no I think we know our situation best and we know Iris best and we know what's best for her yeah and yeah that's hard I had a meeting yesterday with uh, with somebody from the local authority. We're trying actually to negotiate 
getting Iris a place in the outdoor nursery. Um, and yeah, it's hard because you have to, you know, really be willing to stand up for what, what you believe as a parent and a carer. Yeah, and stand up for her rights of getting an education and getting those experiences that other kids do. Absolutely. In my work, we, we spend a lot of time doing that and trying to fight for people's rights to access the support that you're, you know, just to, to live a life that everybody should have a right to. How do you find caring for your daughter and all these various different jobs that you have as well as doing the creative side? Uh, I think it's it's ever-changing <laughs> um, and adapting and it's, it's never straightforward. I think before lockdown it was all a little bit easier um, and we we were starting to develop a bit of a pattern. And, um, and she was going to nursery as well, wasn't she? She was, yeah, so yeah. we had access to childcare which was great. Um, and I think you don't really realise how much you'll love... <laughs> love childcare until you you're like oh right um so yeah I think we, we had quite a routine and I'd even like managed to carve out a whole day a week that I was getting to do ceramics um mm-hmm. which was really special and I think that that time was really important and again going back to that article which she talks about your brain can go in 10 different directions especially when you're a carer and so having kind of time set aside that you know you can just sit with the projects you're trying to work on it's really important during lockdown it's been a lot harder because mm-hmm. uh, we're all at home at the same time and mm-hmm. the, yeah just the the time we have is pretty much split into you know we have we have time to work and not a lot of time for anything else unless iris is around and unfortunately things like ceramics and iris yeah. <laughs> don't combine that well no. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's definitely been harder and I think it's made me reflect on how lucky we were to have the support both in terms of like access to nursery and support of family you know that respite time is so important mm. both for for doing jobs that are important to us and also to the creativity and I know a lot of carers have to give up all of those things parents often have to make a choice between kind of throwing everything they have into maybe researching or finding a solution or mm. you know going at that that challenge or finding a way to kind of be with it and and find a balance and and whatever's right for each parent yeah. you know absolutely but yeah. for me I kind of felt like actually I really care about Iris and I love her but what I I need to stay sane <laughs> and I need to continue working and I need to continue being creative and if I don't do that I don't think I can be the best mother to her because I'm not my best self similar in like in work ways that it's good to change it up a little bit because it makes you reevaluate and re-engage with the other job knowing that you've got your day a week to do ceramics kind of right I'm gonna make the most of that day and then oh, and then on Saturday I'm back playing with Iris and exploring that sensory world again yeah and you can come to it fresh for me that was really really important to have that so it is hard to juggle and there's always more, but I, I'm glad I do juggle. Mm. And I do very much recognise that's a total privilege to be able to do that and to have the support around me um, and that, that Iris's care needs allow us to have the space to do that. So, yeah, I'm very, very conscious that I can speak from... That's, that's a privileged choice that allows me to do that. Because you actually brought it up and mentioned it, which is a really good point, is that 
around the themes of the living mountain and the creativity and the outdoors, you brought up the fact that Nan herself was a carer and that the latter part of her life cared for her mother and then for her friend and housekeeper who lived with her. There's that balancing uh, balancing act between the, the two sides of, of what you do and they're not two separate things either. There's the creativity involved in in the caring as well. Yeah. Absolutely, and and both are important. Whilst obviously, when you when you read the Living Mountain, it's not that's not present for you. But but when you you read it and then know that, it gives you a different lens, I think, to really understand it from and yeah, and to see really how <laughs> how important that space to her was, the Cairngorms was, um, as a space of retreat and talking about you know empathy, maybe her ability to to really empathise with every element of that space. Are there any places you find that for yourself? It maybe is your studio when you get that day a week or that time making your pots or anywhere in particular in the local area or further afield that you find you have that yeah. space. I think being in the studio is a really is a really good space for me and I really I'm very lucky now to have that and it's been a really transformative to me to have a space that is just set aside to make a big mess and to be able to close the door. And not have to clean up after it as well as yeah exactly I mean occasionally but (laughs) yeah yeah every now and again (laughs) yeah that that's a really special thing I know it's a bit cliche to say it because it's kind of linked to your living mountain stuff but I think the Cairngorms is is a really special space to me and obviously I grew up in Aberdeenshire so essentially kind of on the other side of the of the Cairngorms and now I live in Perthshire so the the opposite edge but I still there's a real power for me in, in kind of Often it's now driving through it or, you know, often we've, we've got a van so we're very lucky to kind of spend nights. I don't get up hills very often anymore. Mm. But yeah, to be able to travel travel through the Cairngorms, I feel like it's a space that I've always had been nearby to and it's nice to kind of journey through it. Places that we spent a lot of time when we were kids, Bernabat. Mm. And I remember walking there with, with a, an, a fellow friend of ours and just feeling like, we you know, we, we could be at any time in history or it's just totally timeless and yeah there is something special about about the Cairngorms for me in that and mm-hmm. the trees and the plants and the animals are, are very similar in this part of the world as well so it's it's lovely to see those echoes. I wondered if we could chat a bit about your work as a community worker as well. Absolutely so yeah that's my other kind of hat and I suppose it's it's been my other hat for quite quite a long time just after university or at as I was coming to the end of university, I met my first community worker when I was over in Canada doing some research. I was like, oh, that's what I want to do. And I've been very, very lucky to work in a lot of different communities. Um, I spent a number of years working in Govan in Glasgow, primarily working with what was at that point an integration network, which is an organisation that uh, largely works with people who are going through the asylum process or maybe have been granted refugee status so they've been through the immigration system and all the challenges that entails and then trying to settle in Glasgow so I did various various work with those communities including including some creative work which was really enjoyable and now I work uh, up here more with people who need access to more care and support at home so it might be because they have disabilities or they're elderly and so I work a lot with them and their carers trying to advocate for their rights and make sure that the system's working well for them. So it's really rewarding work. It's really, it is challenging, I think. Um, Obviously, I'm in a very lucky position 
uh, that I get to go home from a lot of it, but it's really rewarding. But there are real challenges and it's it can be very frustrating to, to see how hard it can be to live the lives that we should all be living. Maybe you could discuss a little bit more about the creative work that you did with people in the asylum system. So I was involved in a few a few different projects. I was involved in a theatre group, actually, which was a really um, powerful piece of work. And they're still, uh, the theatre group's still going. They're called World Spirit Theatre. And that came out of a project around kind of just, just highlighting the issue of destitution. Our current UK government has a policy of creating a hostile environment so trying to make it as hard as possible Mm -hmm. to live here unless you earn lots and lots of money so they deny people access to money and particularly if you become come to the end of your initial asylum claim you're cut off from any access to housing and financial support but you're also not allowed to work so destitution is a major issue where there's lots of people who are street homeless uh, with no access to any support and they're not allowed to work so the theatre group kind of came out of that um, with a number of people who had had experience of going through the asylum system, creating theatre and creating a particular kind of kind of political theatre that is about presenting an issue to the audience and then getting getting the audience to get in the story and try and change the outcome to try and create solutions. Yeah. So yeah, so it was really powerful and and empowering, I imagine, for people involved as well, because so much of the asylum process is very dehumanizing, and being able to be part of a, a group of people creating an important work must be very empowering, I imagine. Yeah, it it certainly felt that way, and and in terms of the work that they're continuing to do, yeah, it, it feels like it gave us a, a space to to talk about those real experiences and and add kind of flesh to them beyond just the statistics we hear to to make that real, but Mm. also to present that and, yeah, to be seen and heard is such a powerful thing. And and, and very sadly, I think there are a lot of people in our society who don't get very many opportunities to be seen and truly heard. Mm. And so there's the power of that, I think. So it was a really inspiring thing to be part of. And I'm still very close to a lot of the people who were involved and... Yeah, and I guess the the other element of it, which is, you know, is great about doing creative things together is that, that relationship building, that that people came together and, and formed really close relationships that continue to this day, and that's really, really powerful. And f- forming a community, which is, yeah. what, is what everybody needs. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of the other work I was doing was quite a lot of work with kids sort of linking up different communities so we worked with some kids in Dumfries in Galloway so living a kind of more rural mm-hmm. well I guess Dumfries isn't rural but quite a different place and then um, younger people in Govan a lot of whom had experienced the asylum system and just using art as a kind of vehicle for having conversations and, and getting to know each other to know each other's experiences and, and that was really powerful again because it's just that that opportunity to be seen and heard on both sides and understood and seen as human. And I think, sadly, whilst we have so much media and <laughs> we're, we're bombarded with information all the time, I think opportunities to really see and... And the opportunity to express yourself. And the ni- I suppose the nice thing about that creative side and the art is that there's no language barrier as well. Yeah, we can all find a way to express who we are and what we are through that process. Mm-hmm. So it was really really powerful and it's it's really stayed with me I would like I'd like to do more of it (laughs) at some point just ask you one final question if that's all right is um if there 
is any music or anything you like listening to could be spoken word or something that makes you think of being in the outdoors and in that sort of that space so I have been trying to think on this I heard from your uh, other podcasts that you've given other people at least at least two so <laughs> I'm gonna take liberties okay yeah you can have as many as you want there's no limit uh, there's no limit so yeah one I think one album I suppose Martin Bennett's work is really powerful for me. Oh, yes. Um, and it's great to have a dance to, mm-hmm. but it also, you know, really connects with landscape and the history and the culture and the kind of vernacular. And it, it makes me think a lot of Hamish Henderson, who was a kind of local to this area, and a lot of his work around archiving song and history. And Yes. Yeah, so I really enjoy his work, and it makes me think of outdoors. And then my other, my other music would be the... Uh, work of Ian McCall the the song the joy of living is a really powerful one for me and I mean it's very explicit in the way it talks about the landscape of Scotland but it just kind of takes me there takes me to the top of a hill um so yeah that would probably be mine thank you so much for chatting to me it's been really interesting and obviously we've been friends for ages and never kind of ever sat down and had a conversation like this before so podcast is a great excuse to chat to all my pals it is isn't it yeah yeah, thanks very much not at all i'll have to think of some things to podcast you for the problem is i'd never get around to actually turning into anything but sometimes like you say the joy is just in the conversation so well the only reason i'm getting around to it is because of lockdown so yeah i'm kind of thankful for having the time absolutely i guess to actually do something that i'd been wanting to do for ages so thanks for agreeing to be um a guinea pig Thanks for giving me the opportunity. The article that Nikki and I are referring to is called Carers as Artists by Lucy Bell. You can find it online. Down with the fog and down comes the rain